When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Well, yeah, I mean, the shame. The sh- no, I, I'm still ashamed of it. I'm still ashamed, yeah. I'm still... I feel tarnished by it. He has written on the back of it here. It says, arrested for fraude, fraud in Dutch. And um, I'm still really frightened every time I see that word, you know, my name with fraud written beside it. That innocence I think I had. I I never I mean I'm not a criminal, I don't I don't do criminal things, but I always thought that people would regard me as innocent, would look at me and think I was innocent. Why have no other suspects been arrested? I'm sorry, I can't help you any further. Bye bye. I'm sorry, I can't help you any further. Bye-bye. I'm sorry, I can't help you any further. Bye-bye. I'm sorry, I can't help you any further. Bye-bye. So this is a, a black dress, and I bought it when I was in Amsterdam in February. And it's got a big hood on it and a green belt, a green wide belt. And this is what I was wearing the day uh, it happened. My name's Louise Williams. I'm blonde, I'm white, I'm Irish and I'm in my 40s. I'm a, a journalist. I'm based in Dublin and I do a lot of radio training. I work with a Dutch organisation. The story began, I was in uh, the Netherlands to give a training course it was two days, and it was in The Hague. And then I went to Amsterdam to see some friends. Well, you came over for dinner. I think we made burritos. Are you, did we make burritos? Yeah, I think it was burritos. Yeah, we always make burritos. You know, we were just talking about work and uh, the future of my job. And I, I'd booked my flight for the Saturday night, Amsterdam, Dublin. I think I think we went to the airport around 7 o'clock or something. I remember before putting kids to bed that I had to drop you off at the airport. No, I, the only thing I remember is actually that I dropped you off, that I didn't go with you in the check-in uh, uh, area. Yeah. Okay, for you. To my colleague on the end. When I got uh, to the passport control, I handed over my passport, and the chap 
seemed to be looking at his computer and he, he, he was looking at his computer for quite some time and then another border guard or police officer appeared behind him and they both looked at his computer and they, they discussed whatever was on it. It's not that comfortable when people are, you know, I couldn't see what they were looking at. I don't know what, what, they, what had come up. There was a big queue, yeah. And I had about an hour and a half to my flight. So I was fairly okay time-wise. Um, I only had hand luggage. I had my suitcase with me on my back and I had a handbag. Um, it was February, so I had a winter coat on. Um, and they kept on talking for quite some time. I couldn't hear. I do speak some Dutch, but I, I couldn't hear. They were in, it was more looking at the computer and then the chap who was sitting down said, we just need to ask you some questions. Can you come to the office? We want to ask you a few questions. You know, I thought maybe like a tram fine. I'd lived in Holland before. You know, maybe something like that had come up. I don't know. I've never skipped the tram. I've never not paid the tram. But I, 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 just, I don't know. I just thought maybe it was something very minor like that. Irish passports are like gold out there. Authorities in Dubai claim Israeli agents used forged Irish passports when they killed a leading Hamas figure there last month. I think identity theft is becoming a bigger challenge for us. Ireland is expelling a Russian diplomat after accusing Moscow of stealing the identities of Irish citizens for use in spy operations. The name, place of birth, and the date of birth would be the first items usually checked at an airport. And then they just guided me into a room where there were desks and computers and a lot more of these border guards of some sort. There's a row of chairs on the right-hand side and I sat down and I, I still had my luggage with me and everything with me. They said, we just need to check. Some information has come up about you and the computer and we just need to check. And they said, it wasn't very clear, but they thought it might be like some old information about me or they just said they needed to check. And I said, I have to get a flight, obviously. And they said it should take about 10 minutes or so. I wasn't panicking or anything like that. Like, I don't have anything, you know, to fear coming up in the system. So I sat down and it was more hassle, I'll be honest. It was more like this is some administrative hassle or something, you know, some teeny fine that maybe I didn't, I don't know, that maybe somebody used my name, something like that. There were quite a few border guards in the room. There were some younger ones and they were kind of talking to each other and looking at me at the same time, but they... They didn't realise that I speak Dutch, right? And one of them said to the other, "They see well leaf out," and that means um, she looks sweet, you know. And they said it like, "How can that be? She looks sweet." And I just—I didn't even show my face. I don't think that I understood that. Then an older policeman came out, and he was quite gruff, and he said to them something along the lines of, "You know, don't be judging on appearances." And I just sat there, I just kept my head down and said, you know, it, I, I think I do look quite innocent. I think I do have quite an innocent look. 
I don't wear loads of makeup. Um, my hair's in a bob. It's just shoulder length. I don't wear a lot of bling jewellery. I dress like... I think I've dressed quite smart. I don't know. It's very hard to judge with your own face, but I don't think I, I tend to look guarded. And I think I didn't look like I had something to hide because I didn't feel like I had anything to hide there. I just had to wait, and it was an administrative hassle. There was one guy at a desk who, who told me to sit down and wait and that they were checking. Um, and the phone rang, and he picked it up, and I, I don't think he even said anything, to be honest. The way I remember it, he just listened, and then he put down the phone... And then that's when it really kicked off. And, and that's what they said. You're under arrest for internet fraud. Uh, I'm, like, even thinking about it, I'm, I'm scared. Like, So I stood up. I had this big rush of adrenaline. You have no right to arrest me. This is a case of mistaken identity or, or stolen identity. You have no right to arrest me. I knew internet. I don't even know what internet fraud means, but I knew... Bullshit. I reached into my into my coat pocket. My phone was there, and I hadn't phoned anybody to say that I'd been delayed or anything. It was only a few minutes, as, as far as I was concerned. So I reached into my coat pocket to take out my phone and call my father, and they said, no, you're not allowed to make any phone calls. You're not to use your phone. I was kind of relieved. I, I know... It sounds, uh, it sounds strange, but I was actually relieved to not have to tell my father, Dad, I'm in jail. Dad, you know, I've been arrested. All contact with the outside world is, is, is it's all about cope. Manage this, manage my feelings, manage my panic and just get on with it. Once you're under arrest, that is it. It's like the door closes behind you. That's it. You're in a process and you've no idea where that process is leading. No idea. It's very official. It's very officious. Take off your belt. Take off your shoes. And they said, we're putting you into a cell. Like, I never thought I'd be put in a cell in my life. Um, And suddenly I'm looking at this door and knowing I'm going to be going in there. I don't know how long. And they say, the Amsterdam police are going to come and pick you up. They opened up the metal door of the cell And then I had to go over to a wall and put my hands up high on the wall with my my back to the cell. And then a a policewoman came in and she started to search me. She actually was very kind of tentative, patting my body. I suppose to look for drugs or weapons, I don't know. So I said to her, just, you know, just get stuck in there. Like, I've I've got nothing to hide, I said to her as she was searching me. Because I I almost, like, wanted to show, like, you know, it's grand, don't worry, just just search me properly. And she said, yeah, that's what they all say. And that really shut me up, you know, that really shut me up. Um, I wasn't going to help them anymore and, you know, try and support her, but also, you know, that feeling of, it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter what I say at this point. I'm being treated as a guilty person and I'm, I'm screwed. I'm utterly screwed in this cell. I didn't cry. I didn't cry at all. I didn't cry. Do you know, I had no time to cry. I actually felt... I'm in such a dangerous situation, I can't cry. I've got to use all my energy to just think and prepare and and gird myself for, like, for serious trouble. You might think that you'd kind of panic that the walls would sort of come in on you in a cell like that because it's not unlike being in a mental hospital or something like that but I didn't I just turned in on myself 
I didn't allow myself to think too much into the future. I just thought really hard about how did this happen? I had no idea. And I just thought, I have to think so hard and so fast. Is there any way that I could have signed papers or somebody could have, a friend or an acquaintance should have, could have used my identity or my signature or whatever to commit fraud? Like, is there any way that they could legitimately have evidence that I've committed internet fraud? I realised there wasn't. You know, I, I don't know how long I was in that police cell for in the airport. I think maybe 40 minutes, an hour, but I didn't have a watch. I didn't have any way of knowing, you know, how fast time was passing. They checked on me twice, I think, through the little window in the door. And then they handed me papers about a lawyer, about how, whether the possibility of getting a lawyer and the fact that I had a right to a lawyer if I wanted. After a period of time, the door opened and I just sat on my this metal bench where I'd been sitting and I looked out and I saw two policemen and these are normal, you know, standard Amsterdam policemen, Dutch policemen, old men. And I just looked at them and I... When I believed that in some way my identity had been used to commit a crime and that it was going to be incredibly difficult for me to prove my innocence because if it's your identity that's been used to commit some sort of a crime... What can you use to prove your innocence? How can you prove that you're innocent if your identity is done? So the only thing I could think of doing was just expressing my innocence through my body language and the way I looked at people. So I, I just looked at these men, and they're old men in their 60s. Uh, Non-threatening is, is the best way I can say it. They just kind of, And I just looked at them, and they just looked at me, and I just I wanted to express to them in the way I looked at them. I wanted to express, you know, I'm an innocent person. I pose no threat whatsoever. And not helplessness either. It's kind of a fine line. Just like, look at me. I have nothing to hide. That's what I tried to express in the way I looked at them. And so we left the cell. I put my shoes back on. I put my belt back on. I picked up my suitcase. You know, they were helping me. Like, they were nice. We walked out. And actually, I wanted to check that my phone was still in my handbag. So I actually handed one of them my winter coat and said, oh, hold on, I just have to look in my bag for my phone. I looked, and he just kept on holding my coat as we walked out. And I know that doesn't sound like a, a significant thing, but for me it was a huge victory. It was like normalising something that was distinctly not normal at all. I was treating them as humans by, you know, oh, could you hold my coat while I look? Suddenly we're back to normal rapport. This is the way you deal with normal human beings. It's not how you react to somebody who's guilty of a crime or... And he just kept on holding my coat, and that was decent, you know. And to be treated decently was actually very significant at that point. So I'm walking out of Schiphol Airport, and, you know, Schiphol Airport is, is very well known for drug trafficking, and I just held my head high. I just, I didn't look at anybody, I just looked straight ahead, but I'm sure all the passengers were looking at me and thinking... She's been trafficking drugs. You know, I've got a policeman on either side. What else are you going to think? So we start to drive out of the airport and the car is kind of padded on the inside or slightly cushioned almost on the inside or something. It's got sort of maybe fabric or something. I don't remember exactly. But I sat in the back there and we, we actually talked about getting a lawyer and the guys explained that if I asked for a lawyer, it would take two hours and by the time the lawyer arrived, the detectives would be off duty and I'd have to spend the night in a cell. 
And I was very frightened about the prospect of spending the night in a cell in Amsterdam on a Saturday night sharing with people who, you know, could be threatening, could be completely off their face. I think that was the most immediate fear that I had to deal with. forget that journey, you know, it was it was like a little bubble of security. I'd left, like, something so horrific had happened to me at the airport, something I never thought would happen to me in my entire life. And I was in this little bubble, this bubble on wheels, this safe bubble on wheels, driving to something utterly unknown. I mean, really, really frightening. And um, I cried, like, I just really kind of violent, choky, just physical crying for a few minutes, just really loud and kind of, I don't know, I I don't think I've ever cried like that. But it was that little security bubble I could let myself cry before I got into the next really unknown stage in the police station. It was an interlude. It was a little breath. So we, we pulled up at the police station on Ferdinand Bolstrash and there's a kind of a booth and there's a youngish policeman behind it and he's looking at me and he has these incredibly sort of blank eyes. He's just looking at me and he's like, do you need drugs? Yeah, so this is Amsterdam. I assume he's meaning like, I don't know, heroin or E or I, cocaine. I have no idea. A few friends have thought that I should <laughs> should have said yes. But anyway, um, so... A policewoman came in. She came in through the back, so she came. She unbolted the door and came in. And she searched me again. And the man is still in the background. And I said to her, am I going back into a cell? And I remember even... I didn't even want to ask the question. Just for me, the idea of going back into a cell was just really frightening. And she said, yes, you are. Then she said, oh, you, uh, you need to take off your ring. So I had to take off a ring, which I wear all the time. I never take it off. And earrings. I mean, I... I I'd never take them off even when I go to bed, like. So it's very final. It's abandoning almost things of comfort, of reassurance. Like, this ring, if I leave the house without it on, I'm checking my hand. I'm used to feeling it on my hand, and the fact of not feeling it on my hand anymore is just really unsettling for me. And and then she says, you have to take a brow off. And, like, I mean, it's not... It's a semi-public space that I'm in, you know? So... Am I meant to strip in a semi-public place in a police station so that they can be reassured that uh, my bra is not going to pose a threat to my security? The man who'd asked me all the questions, he was just on the other side of the booth. Why should I strip in front of a man? I mean, for God's sake. It's good, you know, it's good when an opportunity is offered to you like that to just say no. When you're arrested, you have no opportunities to say no. So I was like, no, I'm not. And then she said, well, I'll I'll send him away and then you're going to have to take your bra off. So she sent him away and I actually could wriggle out of this bra. My dress is quite open at the top, so I was able to not undress and wriggle out of my bra. That was me figuring out a way to do it. In no way was she going to help me to keep my dignity, my modesty. No, not at all. And a policeman arrives and I'm going to take you into the cell. We were just walking over to the cell. I'm in my bare feet. And I said to him, when am I going to see somebody? When am I going to talk to somebody? 
I don't know. When are you going to tell me when I'm going to talk to somebody? I don't know. And then he locked me in, into a cell. This cell was had transparent walls, so they're kind of perspex walls. Uh, it's quite large, and it looks out onto the station. So I could see into a, a room, kind of a corridor, where there was a coffee machine, where all the policemen and women were gathering and kind of coming toing and froing. And there was also a kind of a corridor in front of me, where people would come into the station, where people would pass from the cells behind me into the coffee area, where the policemen and women would. I see a lot of people moving around. I see a lot of policemen and women in uniform moving around. And I, I see two plainclothes detectives. I know they must be detectives. They're in plain clothes, but they clearly work there. And one of them is youngish and one of them is older. And I keep my eye out. At that point, I've just decided I have nothing to hide. So I just sat there and I watched everything, everybody and everything. And I tried to catch people's eye all the time. I don't mean like it was a begging look or a pathetic look, but just like I'm looking at you. And if anybody caught my eye, I was going to hold their gaze if I had the opportunity. That was the only thing I thought I could do. You know, I, I just believed that... Um, that was the only way I could express my innocence. There are screams and people are banging on doors behind me. There are a lot of cells where other prisoners are behind me. They're banging on the doors, they're screaming. There's lots of languages and shouting. And I mean, it's, it's awful. It's just frightening. Um, and then every now and then uh, the door opens behind me. I can't actually see it, but then I see people walking out. And it's other prisoners, men. And they're walking out with a policeman. And then there's a toilet door opposite where I'm sitting, where, where my cell is. And um, so the prisoner goes in, the door's closed, and then there's a peephole and the policeman is looking through. And so I just, I knew I will never, ever, I will, under no circumstances, I'm going to the toilet in this space. So I just watched. And eventually, after, I don't know how long I was there, maybe about an hour one of the detectives was just passing my cell, right? And I was watching. And he looked in at me and he caught my eye. And in that look, I knew I was out of there. I knew the world was back to normal again. He knows I'm innocent. He knows that I shouldn't be here. We didn't hold that look or anything like that, but just maybe it was even just the fact he looked at me. I can't, I can't explain it. It's not rational, but he looked something about that look. I knew I was leaving and I stood up. I stood up and I grabbed my... I had still had these papers, these lawyer papers. And I just stood up and I was like, OK, I'm ready. I want to talk to you now. Talk to me now. Let's clear this up. And I had to wait. Then he, he, then he went off and um, I had to wait for a while. I didn't really think of people when I was in there. I thought about how am I going to cope with this immediate kind of emergency, if you like. I wasn't even at that stage where I thought, I want to call such and such and tell them what's happened. I, the way I responded to being arrested was much more, I need to protect the people around me from what, from what has happened to me, not let this spread and trouble them and all those sort of things. So after about maybe 10 minutes or so, uh, a, a policeman in uniform came to my cell door and he said um, that I was going to be interrogated with the, that I could talk to the detective. So I stepped out of the cell, put on my shoes, we just left them at the door and went into an office. It's a regular office. 
I said to him, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you what I think has happened to you. And he said, no, I'm going to talk to you. I've got things to tell you. And I said, no, I really need to tell you what I think has gone on here. I'd, I'd kind of been revving up finally to be able to tell what I reckoned had been going on. He said, no, I'm going to tell you. You sit down. So I sat down and it was friendly. Like he said, I've done a bit of research on you. I've done a background research and I'm looking at you. And he held out his hands like that. He held out his hands towards me, if you know what I mean, open. And he said, uh, I'm looking at you and I know you're innocent. And I'm like, I mean, my body was so tensed and so taut with everything that had happened to me that suddenly it was like, ah, oh, this is how I expect to be treated. And so he explained what had happened and, and um, I got to ask loads of questions then as we went along and it was pretty much as I'd, I had thought that somebody had used my identity in some way. And he said that €100,000 had been taken out of a Dutch bank account in 2005 and then 16000 of that was transferred into a bank account that had been opened in my name. All right, so the... The fraud was that 16,000 that I had been accused of. We talked about the circumstances of that and he gave me a few more details. And then he said, well, what we're going to do, and this was very friendly, like bantering. And he was even like, I think he was a little bit flirtatious with me, you know, almost like playful, let's say with me and suddenly it's back to the sort of norm, the sort of conversation you have in all sorts of circumstances just um, and he said um, we're going to make a short statement just about who you are then you can leave the station and you'll hear from us in a few weeks we'll drop the case so it was almost like I was a different person then I was no longer was I you know watching people suspicious wondering how on earth I was going to negotiate a way out of this it was suddenly like this was a friend you know he was helping me to get out of this situation. He was there to explain to me how to get out of this situation. Nobody had explained to me what was going on up till then. And that was it. We shook hands. And quite amiable, quite friendly. Then I stepped out of the police station and it was cold night air and I really took a huge deep breath of that night air to just savour it and just uh, yeah it was it was amazing I was so I was so happy really that reason had been seen you know this was this was the way I expect the world to be The first person I called uh, when I got uh, into Dublin Airport, I was waiting at the bus stop. And at that point, I'd kind of digested what had happened to me. It was uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning or so. And I called my father. You sounded very agitated and not yourself. You're usually calm on the phone and under control. And you sounded quite agitated and upset. And you told me you were phoning from the airport. You told me what had happened. The whole story was very upsetting, obviously very upsetting to you. My full name is Catherine Louise Williams. I was arrested at Schiphol Airport for internet fraud. The detective told me the case would be dropped. I sent him an email when I got back. He gave me his email address. I sent him an email. He acknowledged the email, but then he started to ignore my emails, my follow-up emails after two weeks, three weeks. I I wanted the case dropped. I wanted written evidence that they knew that I was never, uh, had never committed a crime. And I really wanted that. 
I got ranty. One friend kind of suggested that I should just drop it. You did go on about it, I have to admit. You were quite, I'd say, almost compulsive about it. You came back to the topic over and over again, and even if I hadn't been listening to the words, I could have told from the tone of your voice what you were talking about. Uh, I could see why. As I say, I had never been arrested, but I think it would be a talking point with me for quite a long time if I had been. Welcome by the Netherlands Embassy in Ireland. You've reached the Netherlands Embassy in Ireland. If you know the extension number, you can dial it. So I've just got off the phone with um, the Dutch Embassy. It's fourth uh, of March. I've been waiting for a month to hear that I've been cleared by the investigating magistrate, and I can travel to the Netherlands. The detective told me that that flag that was attached to my identity and it's been lifted now so actually the Netherlands is the only country that I know I can travel to safely anywhere else I still have this underlying concern that um, my identity may have been used somewhere else yeah it's not good it's creepy it's really creepy I'm on hold. All the lines are busy. I called the Irish Passport Office to get advice on where else my identity, my stolen identity, might have been used to commit crimes. And I have very mixed kind of um, feedback from them. They, were, they, they didn't answer a lot of my calls and they said they'd go to Interpol and then they didn't want to go to Interpol. I wanted them to use Interpol to see if my identity had been used to commit crimes elsewhere. And then they couldn't do that in the end. And I was going around in circles in my head. How did this happen? How was my, where was my identity stolen? I'm sorry, I can't help you any further. Bye-bye. Nice. I couldn't progress it. I couldn't get, for, couldn't get answers, let alone get my name cleared. Um, and I, I just got really quite depressed and quite kind of bogged down. And why was I arrested following a spot check on my passport? I started to feel more like a victim of it. When I was actually arrested, I didn't feel so much like a victim of it. I felt like I had to fight it. I was a combatant in the whole thing almost um, and using any resources I could. But I started to feel like a victim of it, that I was I was kind of trapped um, my name hadn't been cleared yet, but and I didn't know the consequences and people wouldn't help me to find out the consequences. I've never met a PI before. Um, we've arranged uh, to meet at three at this uh, tea shop. It's in a park and um, it's all a teeny bit cloak and dagger. Or am I over-interpreting? Anyway, look, I'm here I'm a little bit early and I have a long list of questions. And um when we arranged to meet, he said he'd be um, larger than life, literally, and I told him to look out for a windswept blonde. It's not uncommon, it's very common. Irish passports are like gold out there. This is John Kelly. He's a private investigator. You're not going to resolve it today, tomorrow or this year. You're the classic case of stolen identity. They know your date of birth, your passport number, they know your full name. That's enough for them, because if I had your passport and date apart, I can find out anything I want about you. 
Somebody could be testing the resilience of your identity and see how far it would get released so they could actually use it to pull off a major stroke. Because if you're given the freedom to travel, then the identity stealer who has your identity also has the freedom to travel. I think identity theft is becoming a bigger challenge for us and it's something that we are taking a far closer look at. Joseph Nugent, he's the head of the Irish Passport Office. But when I requested the information, I was promised callbacks. I didn't get callbacks three times, called another agency within the passport office, requested some information, was told that it wasn't a one-stop shop. There was a real lack of not only a coherent policy, but also somebody who was there to actually help me in my time of need. And as I said, I think that's something that, that, that I would be very, very conscious of and something that we've been looking at. And, you know, in, in the context of our discussions with other government agencies around the issue of identity, it's a matter that would be high on our list of things to discuss. But my other concern, as you can imagine, was that my identity might have been used to commit a bigger crime um, yeah. subsequent to 2005. So I requested any help whatsoever in searching to see if that had happened, to say, well, if I went to Spain... Is there any way that I could check and see if, if my identity had been used in Spain? But I, I asked for support with that and, and it didn't go anywhere. Our responsibility is very limited. I mean, our responsibility lists purely around the issuance and the storage of information about passports. The questions associated with uh, international use of somebody's identity abroad go beyond our, our particular responsibilities. But as I said, it's something that we are aware of. It's something that clearly we are trying to resolve. And it's something in the context of our discussions with our international partners and with governments at home. It's Monday the 28th of March and um, I've just got in the door um, and it's about lunchtime, the post has been and there's a letter here, it's from the, it says Polizzi, um, uh, Dutch police. Um, Okay, Uh, Amsterdam Dutch police, uh, it's in Dutch. Uh, Dear Mrs Williams, well C.L. Williams, that's me. Oh, no further prosecution. Okay. Hierbij deel ik u mede dat ik heb besloten geen verdere strafvervolging tegen u. Okay, so none, no further prosecution. The reason is um, ah, insufficient evidence. Okay, I think I'm okay. In Insufficient evidence for us to be able to prosecute to you. I'm trying to translate it. Um, the, the, the case is closed. Yeah. And that's signed from the officer of justice. Oh my goodness. I'm in the clear. Um, that is just amazing. I wish this had come through before the weekend. That would have been a weight off my mind. Fantastic. It's dated the 17th of uh, March, this. Paddy's Day. I realised, once I looked at the letter more closely, that I shouldn't have been quite that relieved because actually I'm looking at it again now and it says that the case against me may be reopened on the basis of new facts or circumstances. The case has been, you could say, parked rather than dropped. So what I did was I got in touch with basically the post bank where um, the detective told me that the bank account had been opened. It has now been bought out by the ING bank. So I got in touch with ING. Welcome by the ING. Toets 1. For Netherlands, please press 2 for English. And I said to them, um, I want to find out what part of my identity was used to open this bank account in my name. So I got a phone call um, uh, from my, it was from one of the security team and uh, Miss Williams, yes. And he said to me, well, we've done our investigation and we can tell you that your identity was never used to open up a bank account. I was like, how can that be? Like, 
I, I, could, I couldn't compute even when they said it to me. And he said, yet your identity was never used, but the identity of somebody who was born on the same day as you, the 3rd of the 3rd, 1968, and has the same, is called Williams as well, that person's identity was used to open this bank account. Mr. James Williams. I just, you know, it's a man. I was mistaken for a man. How could, really, I just, I, I had to laugh. I had to, you know, it's absurd. There was one more thing I had to know, which was, he had an Irish passport, right? No, he is of Nigerian origin. And then I really had to laugh. He's black. He's a man. He's called James. How can anybody mistake, you know, this uh, white Irish woman called Louise for him? But we were born on the same day. We're twins. I just I just couldn't believe it. I, I really couldn't believe it. So this made me think immediately. It made me think of a document that was on the policeman's desk. He had some documents on the, on the table. At one point, I looked at one of them and I saw the name Williams. But I saw the letter J beside it. And I didn't know why it was there. I just, I, and I think it, that was part of a statement. I didn't have time to take in the documents and I was talking, busy talking to him rather than looking at them. He was sitting up opposite me. He's looking at a blonde white woman called Louise. The person whose identity was used to open that account is called James. He's black. He's the same age as me, 43, born on the same day. And he never let me know. Dennis Heenan, the detective inspector at the Garda Bureau of Fraud Investigation. I thought it unusual, to be honest with you, that a surname and one initial maybe to be used to detain somebody was, was unusual. Now, that's, I'm not criticising the Dutch police. It may be a case that that warrant was issued by a magistrate's court on foot of some earlier investigation and they had to refer back to that magistrate on any action taken. Having been arrested and gone through this process, I may be on a list of suspicious people, which means that I might be held, not necessarily arrested, but I may be held on my travels. Now... What's your feeling? Do you think that I'll get more attention, let's say, from border police in the future? I wouldn't think so. I know of no informal list of people to be detained or searched. The only lists I'm aware of are the Interpol lists of wanted persons or the lists that might exist in any jurisdiction of people that are wanted on foot of warrant in that jurisdiction for some crime. So it's been, what... Uh, six months since I was arrested, and I still don't know why I was arrested. You really wouldn't believe how many people I've been in touch with. The data commissioner in the Netherlands, the ombudsman in the Netherlands, people who advise on cyber fraud in the Netherlands. I really, I've got in touch with a lot of people. So far, the border police have told me that it absolutely wasn't their fault. They believe that it was, in fact, a, a keyboard error, that my uh, the wrong letter was put in beside the name Williams. I've turned into a crank letter writer. Like, I, I, you know, I send a lot of letters now. So I will get my answers about this arrest from the Dutch police. I should never have been arrested. My identity was never stolen. My identity was never used to commit a crime, to commit fraud. It's given me a kick up the arse, a massive, enormous kick up the arse to have this happen to me. And it's just, it's it's made me realise how much I was taking for granted about that people would look at me and assume I was innocent. I think it was quite arrogant of me to have that assumption that people would think I was innocent. You know, that not, oh, I wouldn't get arrested. And I didn't, you know, I realised I really, how much in my own case I had to fight. You can't take these things for granted. You have to, you have to claim your rights. Just such a deep learning experience for me. So, yeah, now I, 
I'm, I volunteer with a human rights organization and I love it and I just feel like there's kind of like a deep sort of source of motivation for me to fight to fight on behalf of people whose rights aren't being recognized and I'm, I'm doing a master's next year human rights law I was flying back from Congo um, in July. I went off to do another training course there. And I, I didn't, I wasn't too nervous about the border, you know, about being arrested. I was okay. Um, I had some documentation with me just in case anything happened. I've been advised to get more documentation from the Dutch government to show that um, uh, it was a mistaken arrest. But um, I was traveling back and I came through Schiphol. And there's a lot of border police when you get off, immediately when you get off the plane, even before you get to passport control. And I was looking at one of the guys and he caught my eye and I just held his gaze. And like, I... I just wanted him to stop me. I wanted him to, to, to say, oh, Miss Williams, you know, can we just ask you a few questions? And I would have been blazing. I was like, stop me. Come on, stop me. And they didn't, of course. Passengers boot and Alaish traveling to Manchester. You are delaying the flight. Immediate boarding, please, at gate D52. We will proceed to offload your luggage.